everyone, and welcome to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm pleased to introduce today's special episode of the podcast. Our show today is being streamed on our main RSS feed, but it's also a featured digital panel for the 2022 Computers and Writing Conference. We had originally planned this episode to be featured as part of the 2020 Computers and Writing Conference before it was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but we are pleased that we're now able to present to you our panel episode entitled, How Can Podcasting Help Us Re-Engage with Social Justice Inside and Outside the Academy? In this show, three of our co-producers, myself, Sophie Wadzak, and Calvin Pollock, reached out to individuals doing social justice work in our local communities. In the upcoming segments, you'll hear me talking with Danny Singerman, a food justice advocate working in Hartford, Connecticut. Sophie Wadzak checks in with our previous guest and friend of the show, Crystal Grabowski, who does reproductive justice work in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And finally, Calvin Pollock presents a conversation with his colleague Avery Edenfield, a faculty member in the English department at Utah State University and an advocate for LGBTQ issues in the university and beyond. Afterward, the three of us take some time to reflect on the through lines we noticed in our conversations and offer some takeaways on the role that podcasting can play in helping amplify social justice work both inside and outside of the academy. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Helberg uh, reporting in from Hartford, Connecticut. I am lucky to be joined here today with Danny Singerman, who is the advocacy coordinator with the Healthy Hartford Hub. Danny, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to great to get to sit down and talk with you. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, uh, and the listeners would love to hear too, a, a little bit more about the advocacy work that you're currently involved in. And uh, how did you become involved in that? Sure. So... I am, like you already said, the advocacy coordinator for the Healthy Hartford Hub. That title basically means that I not only work with the members in the group, so they are comprised of uh, community members, as well as stakeholders, and stakeholders could mean um, the organizations that support us, as well as uh, maybe government officials, business owners, any of those sort of people. So I work with all those sorts of folks, coordinating, communicating, letting them know about meetings, communicating our messages, just letting people know, you know, exactly what our project is about. And the project is about, you know, creating not just a grocery store, but an entire healthy Hartford hub, an area, uh, downtown Hartford, that will be dedicated towards making sure that there is access to healthy food, um, that there's access to, you know, activities, things like that, that supporting small businesses, and just anything else that is important for the life of a city and for neighborhoods that depend on um, a healthy city. Yeah, I was uh, curious to ask you about some of the uh, of the more sort of communication based aspects of the work that you do. So you run a lot of social media accounts. Uh, you said you do email communication. How else would you say communication kind of comes into the work that you do with Healthy Hartford Hub? Well, I mean, like you already mentioned, so we do email, we have a newsletter, we also have social media, so that's Instagram and Facebook. We also have a Pinterest account, and we just use that to share, like, you know, um, recipes and healthy tips and things like that. But one of the main parts of the work is actually going and speaking to people, speaking to community members, going and talking to business owners, um, as well as, you know, speaking to people in schools and things like that, parents people who are raising kids, but they might not necessarily be the parent of the child, maybe grandparents or guardians. 
that's part of the communication that we do as well. I'm really interested in that latter aspect where you're actually getting to, you know, have interactions with people. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what are some of the best ways that you've found to get people engaged or interested in the work that you're doing, uh, the work that uh, Healthy Hartford Hub is doing? I guess, do you have any good sort of conversation starters? Like, what do you use to pique somebody's interest who might not otherwise know about uh, about these issues? So, so actually, earlier you asked me a question. I didn't really explain why I got involved. So let me explain that really quickly, and then it'll make sense. So Basically, um, a few years ago, I was a divorced mom of two little kids. One was um, just like one years old. And I was living, you know, in the northern neighborhoods in Hartford. And there are no grocery stores here, um, except for smaller ones. So like Save-A-Lot, Seatown is on the south end, but still, it's you know, it's a small grocery store. There's another one, um, but it's kind of expensive. Um, And I was one of those people that this project is for, a person who was pushing a stroller with a a one-year-old and a little kid, um, you know, trying to get to the grocery store to get food because I didn't have a car. 40% of our um, residents do not have vehicles. Um, Or taking a lift, and that's expensive. Or taking a taxi, which is even more crazy. uh, Or taking the bus. So I was one of those people, and I was approached um, because I was also an AmeriCorps member. I was AmeriCorps VISTA serving the North Hartford Province Zone um, and working out of City Hall. And, you know, because of that, I was meeting a lot of people in a lot of different meetings, um, planning meetings, development meetings, things like that. And I was approached by um, someone from Hartford Community Loan Fund, who was a part of a project for possibly opening up a co-op grocery store. Um, And they initially, I guess the idea was to initially just try to start a co-op. I've been a part of those before, where they'll just go and purchase a bunch of food and then, you know, It'll be like in one location and everybody comes and picks up the food. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was at one uh, for the church I used to go to. Um, But then it just started to grow. Um, And the project, you know, the project has a lot of money behind it, millions of dollars. It has support. um, But the support that they really needed was that community member. So someone like me, a single mom at the time, was perfect um, because it really meant something to someone like me. Um, and I mentioned, and I, I talk about this all the time, that one of the things I noticed is that if you go to where people are already congregating, you will be able to have a higher impact. So, for example, um, at my, well, she's eight now, but at the time she was at a, a daycare, okay? And the daycare was pretty big and it had a really, it, like, it was so cool. It had a really cool governance, kind of like a PPA, but it wasn't a PTA because the kids were like two and like, you know, three or less. <laughs> but it was it was super cool. Like they had a president, a secretary, a vice president, a treasurer. And I remember going to these meetings and they're like voting on stuff and everything. It was really awesome. And from that, I realized like people are already here, you know, and they're already doing that sort of thing. And they're already supportive of their um, their kids and they care about that stuff. So why don't we go and talk to people like that? You know, churches as well. As an AmeriCorps member, we used to have to go to both business owners and churches. And we would go to the churches and, you know, talk to the pastors and different leadership and things like that and see if we can get things put into their programs. And from that, we got a lot of people who were interested in joining like a working group. And so currently, one thing that I'm doing is my daughter goes to, um, you know, a local school. And what I do is I go to the school and I just talk about healthy food and healthy things like that. And we are working on ideas for projects. So one thing I'm planning to do is show up on Friday afternoons and make smoothies and trail mixes and stuff like that for the kids. So 
it's actually more like, you know, just do the things that people just probably need a little bit of help with, kind of show up for them in that way, and then they'll show up for you. That's what I'm saying. That is so cool. I, I really appreciate that answer so much just because I think it's really revealing of the fact that like, you know, you don't have to go out and like bring somebody, you know, from like, you know, oh, hey, you get up off the couch and like, you know, come join me in this advocacy effort that there yeah, are already yeah. people that are like active and engaged and like want to be engaged and, in more. And to that point, that doesn't really work. Like the thing that I noticed about like trying to go after people who are not really interested is that you're going to get the same results. People who are already out showing up for their community, showing up for their kids, already being a part of something, that means that they, first of all, have the time. In a city like this, a lot of people are at or below the poverty level and they are working multiple jobs. So they do not have time to go to these meetings in the evening. But what will happen is when they do have time, so you know, from doing this kind of work and um, organizing and all that sort of thing, from that, you will be able to pull them in because their neighbor or their brother or their sister or their cousin or whatever was going to this event that was already held at the school. So I feel like that's super important. Like we shouldn't be trying to force people off the couch. <laughs> we should be more like the people who are already up and out are the ones that you should be targeting, you know? Yeah, I, I've, I, I've always kind of felt that way with, you know, in, in seeing certain activist movements that are, you know, like whether they're on social media or other places, just trying to get people from zero to 60 in, you know, three seconds yeah. or whatever. It's like there's already people that are going 40, you know, or 50. Like mm -hmm. we're, there are already people that are on their way there. Yeah, I, I also really loved what you said, too, about, um, you know, using food as kind of a way to bring people together, too. So ha is this kind of one of the first times that you've done where you've like you've had like a food based workshop or you've used food as kind of a way to get people involved or have you done something uh things like this before so i have not put them on myself but i have participated in them and that's where i kind of just kind of looked around and was like huh this is really a smart idea so yukon did this some kind of pilot program um called i think it was called food matters and um no cooking matters sorry it was called cooking matters and they went to my daughter's daycare and they would show us how to shop for food, how to look at labels, how to prepare food. And every night we would go home, not every night, it was once a week. So every week we would go home with a bag of groceries to cook the recipe that we had tried. And so um, it was super popular. Like, I think they didn't have any more spaces. Everybody was just like super excited. Most people showed up every single week. Yeah, it, it, it just was like, and we were, we were so excited. Like everybody was happy. Everybody was talking to each other. And it's so funny because this is the kind of city where a lot of people come here because of low rent and, you know, things like that with the intention and the hope that they can move out, you know? So when things get better for them financially, they will move out, which means the community isn't that strong in terms of neighbors, like neighbors helping neighbors as much. Not to say there isn't any, like I see a lot of cool examples of that all the time that I would love to share, but it's just not, people don't know each other that great, right? So at this event, um, at food, uh, sorry, Cooking Matters, people were just like talking and laughing. And this was a few years ago. So now I might, so again, this is my eight-year-old daughter. When we see these people like out and about, it's like the kids hold hands and, you know, play with each other. They remember each other and they don't go to the same schools anymore. Um, and the parents were all talking to each other. And, you know, so it, it really did build community. And I think food is so important because we all got to eat. And, you know, gathering around the table is just, it's, it's something that, you know, it's strong. It's a strong bond. 
Absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, that's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I'm also kind of curious to, to hear a little bit about, you know, like, like your kind of success stories too. So in your time working uh, with the Healthy Hartford Hub, could you tell me about, you know, a time when you had a, you know, a project or an organizing effort that went over super well? What kinds of things do you think went into making that a success, particularly as it pertains to, you know, communicating with people and kind of making those connections with the community like you're talking about? So we did two things that I thought was pretty cool. And again, it was centered around health. So one was a, well, I called it a walk in the park Wednesdays. So on Wednesdays, we, um, Wednesday evening, I think it was around like six um, in August last year, we all met in the park and just took a walk around Phoenix Park. And it was nice. Like people were talking to each other. It wasn't a crazy huge turnout, but what happened is since we did it every single week, people who couldn't make it showed up the next week you know, and they told someone else. So it ended up being where at least, you know, you saw people like two or three times throughout this, um, this walk in the park Wednesday. And um, Caney Park is a place that has been just underused. Like it's a really, really huge park. It's one of the biggest urban, I think it's the biggest, probably in the Northeast. So it's like the biggest park in a city in the Northeast. And Hartford is actually a super green city. So this is like, it's really huge. Like the park is crazy. Like there are bears in there, like for real. <laughs> So people are like not using it to the best of their ability. And so just by walking around, walking around the pond and just seeing all the beautiful, um, the greenery and the foliage was just really nice. So that was one thing. And the lead up was, you know, I posted on Instagram. No, actually, this at this point, we were only on Facebook. So I posted on Facebook because most people are on Facebook. So I posted on Facebook or our Facebook page. Um, and I shared in some of the um, really strong Hartford-based groups that we have. So there are a lot of them, actually. One, one of the most um, popular one is called Hartford Dwellers. And usually people are complaining in that one. But <laughs> every once in a while, there's some nice stuff. So like you were just sharing, like, um, come meet us in the park. You know, let's go for a walk. And then what I would do is, you know what? We were on Instagram. Now I, I just kind of saw the post in my head. So we were, um, <laughs> I was sharing, like, first of all, you know, that we should stay hydrated. So I would share tips on staying hydrated throughout the day. And then I will also share tips on um, just starting like a walking program, like a walk for 10 minutes, you know, walk up the stairs, walk with your friends, take your kids on a, a short walk, little little things like that. And then of course I will pop in there, hey, join us on Wednesdays. And so I think that really, you know, got people's attention like, oh, that's, this is different, you know, instead of the gloom and doom that can sometimes happen, it was more like, hey, let's just do this, <laughs> you know, like, let's just try this. So that was really cool. Okay. And then uh, the smoothie challenge. Um, So I did a smoothie challenge. Um, The smoothie challenge was basically just to introduce people to different types of food and different ways of eating. I just shared different smoothie recipes. I found them either on Pinterest or like I had the smoothie uh, diet book. um, So I kind of revamp some of them um, to be a little bit more palatable because they're like for diet, you know, so if you want little kids to eat it, you might need to use a little bit more banana or dates or whatever. So we did that and not a lot of people participated. And it's because we had just gotten on Instagram. People didn't really know who we were yet, but we did get people who did make some of the smoothies and they took a video or pictures of it and they posted it. And to me, um, that was kind of like, okay, if we could give them a way to, you know, interact, that would be really cool. So I actually want to try to do that again and put some, maybe some ad dollars behind it and see if that might help. 
But then the other part of it is I felt like, you know, um, we need to do a in-person version. So this is why I went to my daughter's school and I talked to them about, hey, let's do some smoothies. Let's do that sort of thing. So my goal is with what I told you earlier is to basically you know, do these smoothies with the kids and then send them home with the recipes. So I'm kind of trying to mimic <laughs> cooking matters um, on a shoestring budget. But <laughs> um, I, I do think that will be, you know, kind of useful because the kid, because my daughter, so in my home, like we drink smoothies all the time. And I told her, okay, so um, will you help me? And she was like, yeah, I'll help you. But listen, they're not going to drink it if they see spinach in it. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm going to figure out what to do, which might be like pre-mixing, you know, the, the bases of the smoothies and putting it, um, like just putting, letting the kids put the fruit in. But I think parents would be interested to know what was in there. So, um, you know, that's something that we're going to do. And then the other part of it is I will make video and take pictures and show the kids um, making it because I think that it will definitely make parents, you know, become interested and excited around this idea that their kids are making healthy food, you know? So yeah, that's a, that's it. That's what we're doing. That is so cool. I mean, I think what, what I love so much about both of those examples that you just gave is that, you know, it's, like there, there's a place in organizing work for, you know, like holding a rally, like having a march and things like that. But, but like you said, it doesn't always have to be like doom and gloom. Like let's, you know, focus super heavily on, on the problems. Let's focus instead on like what, you know, like what food security looks like, what like access to healthy food looks like. What does it feel like to actually have? And what can we do now? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I, I find that really inspiring and I appreciate that. And, and just towards that end, uh, we can, we can kind of start wrapping things up here what would you say i guess as any words of advice to anybody who wants to get involved in you know food justice uh, ag advocacy or this kind of organizing in their own communities what kind of advice do you have for for these uh these uh, prospective communicators about food justice i think that um basically what we're doing is learning what works and one of the best ways to learn what works is to go ask the people and don't just make assumptions. I think that's the biggest problem that a lot of times people tell, you know, those who would be affected, this is what you need, as opposed to asking them, well, what do you need? You know, what would be most, you know, beneficial to your life right now? And like I just mentioned, like, we're working on what we can do right now, as opposed to like, you know, things that might be a heavier lift, not to say that we're not doing that at the same time, like they're, we're having meetings with developers and all that sort of thing. But I feel like the if we're talking, if we're really talking about grassroots, um, that's where you should go, you should go talk to the people who this is going to be affecting and ask them, what do they personally want? What would, you know, move the needle on, you know, just making things better for health and health outcomes in an area, and then do those things, <laughs> you know, like, do those things as opposed to, you know, focusing all your time and effort and telling people what's wrong with them, their health, all that sort of thing. Cause these are people, you know? So I think like when it comes to food justice, just think about what people want and then go talk to them, you know, ask them, them questions. Definitely. If you can do this around food and then just be respectful of cultures and, and, and don't tell people don't eat that instead say, let's try this, you know, let's, let's try this together, you know, and get that feedback too. Cause some stuff is not going to taste good. We got to be honest. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so much fun, Danny. Uh, I want to say thank you once again to Danny Singerman, the advocacy coordinator with the Healthy Hartford Hub. Thank you very much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me.
Okay, I am here with Crystal Grabowski, and I will start by just asking Crystal, can you introduce yourself and tell tell us the kind of work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Crystal Grabowski, and my pronouns are she, her, and I am a um, abortion care worker and an abortion fundraiser. I work at a um, an abortion providing clinic in Western Pennsylvania, and I also am a board member of Western PA Fund for Choice, which is a abortion fund in Western Pennsylvania that serves patients and provides financial assistance for patients at Allegheny Reproductive Health Center. Wonderful. And how did you get involved in this kind of work? Um, I began doing volunteer abortion access fundraising and you know I really enjoyed doing the work and talking about uh, abortion access and services. So I ended up getting a job at a clinic and I really enjoyed doing that as well. And I just ended up basically doing both things at the same time because uh, they go together. Yeah. And um, my next question is, what have you found is the best way to engage people who are unfamiliar with the kind of work that you do? Do you have maybe a good conversation starter or opener? Yeah, my, my conversation starter is really unfortunate because it it's always based around the attacks on abortion access that have been happening and escalating in severity and frequency over the last five to 10 years. Um, I've been doing this work for five years, but really, you know, the attacks on abortion access have been fairly consistent and escalating over the last several decades. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, there's new stories all the time and um, we're seeing new developments, you know, on a daily and weekly basis and all of this, is awful and, and really horrific. And um, I I try to help people understand what's happening because it's also really confusing. It's intentionally confusing. Mm. Abortion bans and restrictions are, they're all over the place. They're, they're state by state. Um, it's an overwhelming amount of information sometimes and it's really confusing. So I often use those as starting points to saying like, hey, this happened, this is what this means, this is how it impacts people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a really awful thing to have to be talking about, but you know, that's, that's what, where my conversations are starting and yeah. where I'm going from. So. Like current events and like yeah. new yeah. news. Okay. So this is in the news today. This is what it means. This is the reality. Sure. Um, okay. So in your experience, what would you say, say you've got somebody interested in the conversation or interested in what you're telling them, you know, having started, how do you move people from interest to action? Do you have strategies for doing that? Yeah, I like to talk about how the policies and the legal conversations that we're seeing are directly impacting people and focusing on, you know, the needs that arise from Mm -hmm. how people are impacted. So, you know, for example, the Texas SB8 abortion ban that has been in effect since September 1st, 2021. Um, you know, that's an abortion ban that has been in effect for over six months, where the majority of people in Texas are not able to access abortion services if they are over six weeks. Um, it's unconstitutional. It's racist. It's 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 all these all awful things. Um, and, you know, if I'm talking about that, then I talk about people, you know, now people in Texas who become pregnant and are seeking abortion services now need to travel. Okay, so they're traveling several states. Um, 
they're even taking, you know, planes to Western Pennsylvania and we are seeing Texas patients in Pennsylvania. So then I'm talking about the cost of travel. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the cost of plane tickets. And in doing that, I can say like, you know, one way that you can help if you hear this awful story and how this is impacting people is you can help people, you can help support organizers and workers who are helping people navigate mm-hmm. this political reality and helping people get to these services by help, you know, paying for things, um, helping them get from point A to point B. So then, you know, I move from a news story to help, you know, pointing people to organizations that need support, pointing pe- people to possible donations and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, in talking about the reality and the impact on individuals, you can point out individual needs that exist now. Sure. Like breaking it down into smaller. Yeah. Okay. Like, like oh my God, this story is so horrible. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it makes you angry. What can you do? Yeah. You can turn to this organization and support them. Mm-hmm. The people who are, you know, doing this work, you can make a financial contribution. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, share these talking points, you know, yeah. there are little asks that you can do and then you get somebody involved. Mm-hmm. You know, you give them the tools to take action. Great. Um, so I wonder if you could tell me about a time, you could take this question in two ways, but I wonder if you could tell me about a time when a project or an organizing effort was either surprisingly successful, um, you know, in, in a way that you weren't expecting or maybe didn't didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Like, if, have you ever been sort of like surprised by something that you tried in, in, in an organizing space? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is like a positive thing. Great. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to also look at like the negative when things fail. But True. I mean, I guess it, it, I, the first thing that came to my mind yeah. was um, success because I, because I do a lot of abortion access fundraising work, um, getting donations for patients mm-hmm. so that way they can, they can get to their appointment. So I am often surprised by how willing everyone is to help. I feel like when I've made specific asks, um, I'm always surprised in a good way mm-hmm. about how if you always say this is what someone needs, people will rush to fill that need. Like, for example, I can think of like a specific time where there was an individual who needed like about $500 mm-hmm. for their abortion service. And I said like, this individual needs $500. And I got that money donated for that person in 12 minutes. Wow. Do you just, say it like online or? Yeah, I posted yeah. it on social media. Um, and then like, you know, I, I'm involved in a lot of different communities, like a lot of like, uh, uh, abortion access communities, mm-hmm. um, people who are who identify, who are organizers and identify as uh, pro-abortion and like to help when they can. So I posted this to that audience, and I got five hundred dollars for that person in twelve minutes. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's just like <laughs> it, it's just, and then like I wasn't expecting that. Like I, you know, I yeah, I figured I, every little bit helps. Or, every little bit yeah. helps, and I would be able to help this person. But, you know, like 12 minutes later, I was like sharing that money with an individual. That's wonderful. So it seems like what you're saying is that like you found a lot of success in sort of taking like a big ask, like support reproductive justice and breaking it down to like this person needs $500 right now. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, like in order to get to an appointment and pay for an appointment. Right. Like they need that right now. Yeah. And people will help. Like if you ask, 
and you have a big ask mm-hmm. and you say exactly what's needed, mm-hmm. like people will come and help. Yeah. That's like, great. I mean, I think, care. yeah, people do care. And I think that's, I mean, at least like, it seems like people are sort of like, they care so much and are at a loss because like, how do you help with these great big things? But like yeah. breaking it down is a way that like I, as a person, my $20 yeah. will help that other human. Mm-hmm. That seems very effective. Yeah. So if you start with like a horrifying thing, like SBA and the Texas abortion ban. Yeah. Um, and the idea that like there are people who are taking plane trips out of their state yeah. to access a healthcare service, you go from that and then you can go like, oh my God, this is what someone needs right now mm-hmm. to do this. You can help them right now and then you get like like $20 or $50 yeah. and that accumulates and then you're able to help that person. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so you were saying just a minute ago that you're like involved in a lot of sort of different communities in this space. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're affiliated with various like levels of, of networks and organizations. Yes. So what do you view as the role of activists working with or within sort of larger larger institutions or organizations? How do you maintain a commitment to radical change working within those kinds of constraints? So I think that you have to be open to working with everyone who who is willing to help and mm-hmm. being open to have conversations and doing coalition work and and uh, and just doing cooperative work with other organizations um, that are safe organizations. You know, I want to be honest that there are some harmful organizations in leftist spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, like know who you are talking to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most organizations are trying to do good work. Um, and, you know, just be mindful of who you're talking to. You know, you don't want to talk to bosses <laughs> necessarily. Right. But because, like, I know that, um, you know, I'm just going to name the big name but like mm-hmm. you know Planned Parenthood can be a difficult organization to work with at times mm-hmm. but at the same time there are so many amazing people who work for Planned Parenthood there are there's also a rise in unions in Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates so it's like yes it's great to reach out to Planned Parenthood workers and um, their unions and to collaborate with them um, and I think that like knowing like you know approaching it like that mm-hmm. is a much more positive and constructive way than saying like you know Planned Parenthood is a is a, a it can be a harmful organization in the reproductive justice movement which is also you know like there's a lot of like really valid conversations happening there mm. but you know I, there's a big difference between like looking at what a Planned Parenthood CEO is doing and looking at what the individual workers are doing so I just um you know, you know, be mindful of who you're talking to, but still reach out and make those connections. And, you know, constructive criticism and navigating these conversations of harm are also really important. Mm. But, you know, they're not, it's not like you're one or the other, you know, you, you can still be engaged in those conversations of harm and healing, but then also you can be working with people who you share the same goal with and Hmm. doing really excellent collaborative work for the same goal in getting people access to these services so wonderful it was complicated yeah it was complicated well we get we get tricky with this podcast i this is perfect crystal thank you so much for your time (laughs) i appreciate it Hello everyone, I'm Calvin Pollock. I'm joined here 
today by Dr. Avery Edenfield. Avery is an assistant professor of technical communication rhetoric in the Department of English at Utah State University. Avery, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Calvin. I really wanted to invite you for this conversation because you know the broader purpose of this episode is we're talking about the connections between activism and academic work. And you're someone whose work really inspires me who not only you do research about activism, but you do activism yourself and, and you do very inspiring activism within an academic context. So I wanted to ask you first, if you could just tell me a little bit about your research and teaching and how you incorporate activism into your work as a faculty member at Utah State. I think a lot of it goes back to a, a reading an article that inspired me um, Natasha N. Jones, technical communicator, is advocate. She called for what she she called an activist stance, um, which is going from describing oppression to actively trying to change the conditions, um, and to actively trying to bring about justice. You know, for me, that was just like a groundbreaking moment to to think about my work. And also thinking kind of the banality of evil by just describing conditions of oppression as if I'm I'm not also embedded in those conditions myself, right? As if I'm not by reporting them out, I'm not also participating in it somehow. So it became important for me to to seek ways to actively intervene when I'm talking about that. And I think it goes back. I've talked about this before too. Um, when I was um, queer kid at Lee University, which expels students for being queer, LGBTQ+. Um, well, I was a student there, and I had come out and was really struggling with um, my identity. And um, I, you know, because they expelled students, I was lived in a lot of fear. Um, my teachers actively were working against me to get me expelled and to silence me. And you know, trying to pray the gay away kind of stuff. Um, I, most of my friends stopped talking to me and even my family and friends stopped, my family stopped talking to me for a while. So I, was, I pretty much lost all my social structures, all my, all my social my support networks were all gone. And so I went, I would spend a lot of time in the library and I would, I would read a lot of books. So they had queer theology and queer feminism and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, feminist theology and queer theology. So I'd just pour over those books. Um, and they would give me a, they gave me a language to describe my conditions, but I didn't feel any material change, and and I, I was frustrated. I was frustrated that these theories helped me to understand why it was happening, but I didn't have any tools to change it except just to kind of live through it. Um, and so when I became when I got into a position where I could publish scholarship and I could do. I could teach and I could research around those issues. I wanted to, to change. I wanted to make, I wanted to provide tools for that, that queer kid reading in a library going, what now? Um, so that was really my inspiration. And one, one of the ways that I, I do try to incorporate activism in, into my work as a fac faculty member is to follow along with my university's mission statement and really hold it really hold, hold them to task to, to follow this mission statement. So for Utah State as a land grant university, uh, they have an obligation to, to serve the public. And that includes the whole public, right? Not just the, the whole public of the state. 
not just people who, who look like us or those who are in power, it includes everyone. And so while I don't do any like, like lobbying or anything like that in my role as a faculty member, um, I, do, I do hold that mission statement as sacred and um, try to, to think of the ways that we don't quite live up to that and how we can do better. The issues that I'm probably most passionate about right now are LGBTQ access um, issues to healthcare, uh, support, you know, feeling like cultural support uh, at uh, the university level for people who are underrepresented at U Utah State. And so I keep in mind Sarah Ahmed's uh, statement that diversity is a local tool. You know, it's, it's not about aesthetics, it's not a benign plurality but it's a tool for power, right? It's about, it's about power. And so that's one of the things that I'm really interested in working on now at Utah State. That's fantastic. You brought up uh, the, some of the specific issues that you've been working on around health access for LGBTQ plus individuals. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it's like doing that work in a state like Utah which is extremely culturally and politically conservative. From a broad level, how do you feel that sort of hegemonic conservatism when you're doing the work? And, and what are some strategies that you've developed for approaching people, you know, whether students or administrators, uh, to kind of get past their initial blind spots and biases when thinking about these issues? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I keep going back to Utah State's mission statement, and I have it here. The mission of Utah State University is to be one of the nation's premier student-centered land-grant and space-grant universities by fostering the principle that academics come first, by cultivating diversity of thought and culture, and by serving the public through learning, discovery, and engagement. So I use that when I talk to uh, administrators about uh, things, ways that we are not uh, so cultivating diversity of thought and culture, or we're not serving the public. Uh, and again, that includes all public, right? So if there are, for example, trans students at Utah State who aren't being served, then that, that points to a failure or a mismatch, a contradiction in the mission statement. And that's one way that I, I keep doing it. I, I think the largest thing is to, to hook into things that people care about, building that bridge on those shared values I think, you know, a lot of people want to see USU succeed. They want to see students succeed. So by being able to point out contradictions between public statements like this and what's actually happening can sometimes be a, an inflection point. I also think it's, a import, it's important to know where those inflection points are. So, for example, as, as, a, as a kind of up-and-coming space grant, land-grant university, Utah State, you know, just received the, the top R1 designation. So, you know, by, by, by pointing to, to things where there, there, there's some anxiety around, like uh, how they're perceived, um, you know, within sports, how they're received, how they're perceived uh, regionally by their peers uh, or aspirational peers, peers that they want to be like, they want to grow to, um, state, state competition between Utah State and uh, the University of Utah, pointing to those things, I think, uh, can also be a leverage point to say, look, they've been doing this for a long time. They received tons of federal funding for it. They received recognition for it. We can do it too. They've already paved the way. Um, I think that's that's another uh, inflection point with, with Utah State. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because 
that's something that I've definitely observed since moving here is there is this kind of like sense that even though Utah is a state with, you know, majority Republican legislature, uh, Republican governor, there is this sense, and I feel it both at Utah State and like from statements that I've read from the governor, that Utah needs to have sort of a positive public image to the rest of the country. Like there's this kind of like the the national gaze uh, is something that Utah is very cognizant of. Um, and it feels like that that is the kind of inflection point that you're talking about. Like you can sort of leverage that for change. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I, I would think that there are some other states that are more conservative where they would rather take the hit economically and PR wise to um, then be seen as soft on a value. I just don't think that's necessarily that my experience. I mean, maybe there are other ways that that's true, but I think Utah does try to try to work hard to cultivate an an image of of welcome, um, right? That that I think they don't want to be seen perceived as bigots, and and I do think that's an inflection point. I mean, I go back to the trans bill that just passed here, where the governor vetoed it. He put out statements against the trans ban. Uh, and he's a Republican governor. And he put it, he put statements against the trans ban. Um, he was crying on television about how how painful it was that the bill went pat went through. Uh, it doesn't mean that those Republicans that voted for it or people who voted for it, uh, you know, they still get that political win. Um, but the the governor was able to strike a strike a balance of trying to seem you know empathetic. And so I think that's a good example of, you know, trying to, to how, how much like media perception can matter here. Sure. Uh, I wonder if you have any examples of a project or an organizing effort that you've been involved in that you were surprised at how successful they were. And looking back on those, what do you think contributed to those outcomes? So I worked for an employer uh, that had uh, trans health exclusions. In other words, they did not cover anything related to gender transition specifically, uh, and so um, that's a that's a major problem because you're singling out a group of people to deny specific health care to, right? So, if you were, for example, um, a woman who needed a breast reduction and your doctor said you needed it and gave you a, a notice saying that you needed it to your insurance company, they would provide it. But if you're a trans man looking for top surgery, um, a similar procedure. Uh, they would refuse it. They would deny it. So it's clearly discrimination based off gender identity and, and sex. So it took, I started working on that and it took about three years for it to change. Um, thankfully it did change. But the lessons that I learned along the way that were, I felt really impactful um, is first to make allies with the people from mar with different margins of maneuverability. So I, at this, at this place did not have much power but I was able to draw people into the cause that had a lot more power than I did. And ultimately they were the ones to push and push and push and get it done. I kept working with them and then I kept the issue in their mind. You know, I like basically almost had a timer every three months to ping them. It's like, Hey, how's it going? You know, can we meet and talk about it? And that went on for years. So uh, I definitely kept the issue in their mind. Um, I did, you know, make a formal report about the discrimination itself. So those things and, and following up on that report. 
So other thing I, I did, what I would recommend is doing your homework. So I had a fact sheet on trans healthcare at the ready whenever people needed it. Whenever those allies said, hey, I'm going into this meeting, can you give me a fact sheet? Here you go, go for it. I had that ready at any moment. I did the research with other folks and uh, on what our peers did, aspirational peers and other folks were doing, as well as the uh, mounting lawsuits for companies that were refusing trans healthcare. Um, in fact, some more really recent news. Um, and so, yeah, like being able to have all that homework done and ready that I could just send was really, really useful. And I think ultimately paid off. Uh, also just knowing, knowing where those pressure points are, like I said before, that um, I knew the things that my employer was anxious over and they wanted to appear diverse and inclusive. They wanted to compete with big boys, you know, so-called big boys. Um, so I think ultimately people were became more anxious about the appearance than whether or not they were doing the right thing. And uh, mounting lawsuits was part of that. I think ultimately what happened was one of the head honchos told the ultimate person in charge that they were worried they'd be called out in public at a public conference over this. And that it would that was one of the things that ultimately made them change was that they were concerned about being called out publicly. And so that, you know, the last thing I would say is being patient and persistent. I know people got sick of me. Um, you know, I talked to anyone that I could talk to about it. I brought it to people's attention whenever I could. I was in a public training um, on, you know, workplace harassment. I brought it up there. Uh, it, whether it was appropriate or not, you know, rooms full of people, uh, I would bring it up. <laughs> Anytime I could, I talked one-on-one -on -one with people. Hey, did you know this was an issue? More often than not, no, they did not even know it was an issue um so yeah um, i met with uh, the, the the hr i met with the insurance representatives i met with you know diversity inclusion committees i met with anyone i knew who was interested in diversity including inclusion i met with my boss i met with their boss um and i got them all on my side you know they ultimately were on my side with that and so um because of the because it was the right thing to do and there was i had a fact sheet right um and then I, I, I did recruit others to, to kind of make those complaints too and bring it to people's attention. Um, I did, never wanted to make enemies in the process. That was never my attention. I always was, was gracious and kind and patient, um, but I wanted them to do the right thing. And I, and I would frame it as that, you know, and I had to, that meant I had to be patient. Um, sometimes it means giving people the opportunity to fail, um, mm -hmm. you know, but let their failure you know, then, then you can move to the next thing. But it was hard for me, like, to be patient and let them give, give them the chance to do the right thing. And that's why I think it ultimately it took years and years, but um, it worked its way through and, and, and made the change. And there's that healthcare in place today. So, you know, ultimately it paid off, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and a lot of just being annoying, like, <laughs> be, <laughs> yeah. a, like being willing to be that annoying person, but who's also who's also gracious and kind, um, persistent, right. but kind. Um, yeah. You want to like throw your hands up and like start a protest or start a walk out or a strike that that is not going to be effective with a lot of, you know, administrators who most folks don't even know their names, right? Like, you know, as, as you move up a ladder, like, I don't even know who's in charge of what, you know? So, uh, it does, it's not as effective as I think, these, these things that I mentioned, these four steps and, and having all done my research 
um, beforehand and having it in multiple ways that could just be shared, I think was, was one active thing that I did, you know, besides like having my, my timer on my calendar of like my reminder on my calendar about going back and talking to people over and over and over. My final question for you is a little bit more philosophical because, you know, there, there have been a lot of conversations over the last few years in social justice spaces, in academia, about how to achieve radical change when you work for an institution of higher education. You know, what does that look like when this is an institution that kind of reifies hegemonic power structures in so many ways? You know, in it, you know if we think about the lessons of critical pedagogues like Paolo Freire and Henry Giroux, you know, these, these institutions reproduce the ruling class. And so, you know, when you're within these spaces, how do you conceptualize activism as still making a difference? Um, or what does a difference mean in these contexts? Well, I think part of it starts with the kind of classroom conditions and the kind of mentoring relationships that I have, you know, um, on those one-to-one -one, one -one relationships within the department, within the, the committees I'm on, like what behavior am I modeling and um, trying to, like I teach consensus decision-making in my classrooms on purpose. Um, I teach activism in the classroom. I often find myself bringing those, you know, the way that we as a, as a program, the TechCom program have redesigned how we do meetings to make them more democratic and, and consensus-based. So uh, I, I would call that prefigurative pedagogy, which is a paper that I've written about with uh, Jessica Mueller-Rivera, but it talks about like doing within your life the kind of world that you want to create. And so that's how I, that's how I try to navigate it. You know, you can, I, I believe you can be in the institution, but not of the institution. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I just got tenure and uh, I got a text from a person who I really look up to that texted me tenure is power. That's what they said. And I was like, wow, it's like, don't, don't forget the tenure is power. You have to use it. And so that's what I look forward to as a tenured person to take the place, the people who worked with me, you know, as a junior faculty and to saying the tough things to people that you can say and um, using that power and positionality that I now have. And just working at all levels, right? It can't just be it can't just be like programmatic, right? It has to be taught. It has to be all the way through to your late policies, right? I mean, and 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 doing thinking about like what is the goal of what is it that I'm teaching here? You know, looking for look, looking for opportunities for justice and to make change. And I'm maybe I'm teaching them project management. Maybe maybe I'm teaching them, um, you know, science and technology studies. But but within that, that's what we're doing. Thank you so much, Avery. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for sharing with us a little bit about your work. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we just wanted to kind of come together now to talk about what we learned from one another, uh, what we learned from our partners. So I guess we can just start going around. Sophie, do you want to get us going? What did you, what did you learn from listening and talking sure. with, uh, with your partner? 
Well, so this was actually a revisit to a conversation we'd had before. So we featured Crystal Grabowski on a previous episode of Reverb. So we kind of touched on some of the things that we covered in that episode. But I love talking to Crystal. She's an activist in the reproductive justice space and has worn a lot of hats in that space. But I've worked with her myself in various capacities. And I've always just been impressed with her ability to really get things done. And you two both know Crystal as well, right? She has this uncanny ability to really get a commitment out of somebody, which I think is one of the hardest things about organizing is, you know, everybody, it's not always hard to find somebody that agrees that something's a problem or agrees that something should change. These are easy wins, right? Agreeing is fine. But Crystal is able to really get people motivated to do something and I've seen her do it over and over again so she's always somebody who I kind of look to when we think about okay well how you know what is what are effective strategies for doing that because she really does it and I think every time we've talked about this and in the conversation that we had she really emphasizes and I think this is something that both of your interview subjects talk about too is that breaking things down and making things accessible is the way to get action out of people right when things are big and abstract and um maybe you don't know who you're targeting or what you're targeting or how you know when things are big you don't always get action but if you you know can break down a bigger cause or a bigger problem to you know either how that affects the person you're talking to or what's one little thing they can do to help or you know making things bite-sized is maybe a silly word but making things smaller and giving people a point of entry i think is really her her technique turns on that and it sounds like that was the case with the people that you talked to i don't know sophie i mean i would just say that like your conversation with crystal really emphasized the kind of accessibility of action if that makes sense like like you render things accessible by giving people something to do something concrete to do and i think that's really important for kind of leftists and social justice advocates to take to heart for all of the issues that we're concerned about. I don't know, I think that sometimes like donation drives, which is something that Crystal works on a lot in the reproductive justice space, that donation drives can kind of be thought of as like charity or something, right? and, and, sure. theref and therefore as not radical. But there's something so impactful and so important about like knowing that that money is not going to like an organization that's gonna right. kind of pump itself up and like do its own tax avoidance, that money yeah, is yeah. going directly to supply a material need for someone who is mm -hmm. like in dire material need. And so like you are directly intervening in the issue. There's no kind of gap between either you sort of expressing an amorphous opinion or giving money to an organization that you're hoping will do something right. Like you are directly helping with the issue. Yes. And, and that that kind of renders the issue more accessible. Uh, and you don't need a big mechanism or organization necessarily to intervene. Like you can buy the thing that somebody else needs and give it to them. And like, you don't, nobody needs to give you permission to do that. Like, I think that's really powerful to like make people realize like, oh, me, myself, I can help that person right over there. Like that's, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, knowing Crystal and her work, too, that has been something that she is so anybody who is listening to this, who, you know, is in Pittsburgh, works in feminist circles and particularly in reproductive justice. You probably know who she is. Uh, she's extremely effective at uh, at, you know, getting people to do things, not only because she is able to, I think, 
rhetorically figure these big issues or refigure them into smaller, more bite-sized tasks that are actually making a huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, we're not deigning to uh, dismantle heteropatriarchy uh, straight from the get-go, but I mean, what she is helping people do does contribute to that effort, I think, pretty directly. So it's one thing, I think it's effective to like break bigger things down into something manageable, but also not feeling the need to make something bigger than it is. Like you don't need big $10 words to describe something when it's as simple as somebody not having what they need. And so I feel like, I I don't know, I feel like I've always like personally responded the best and like felt the most compelled by activist work and communication that doesn't try to dress things up to be confusing or to make me feel like, well, I'm not sure, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you need, you know that other people need that too. And it does not always have to be more complicated than that. And I respect Crystal for that approach too, because she doesn't really waste time trying to wax philosophic, like, because you don't need that to do the work. Yeah, no, and 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 I would say like, that's a very technical communication way, way to approach this. And, and so one of the things that I've loved about getting to work in the program I'm working in now and working with colleagues like Avery Edenfield is that like he very much keeps that in mind when he's working on these social justice issues like his research and his pedagogy are very direct about his values and about his kind of commitment to radical representation and inclusion and equity for LGBTQ plus people but he's always finding ways to make that as accessible as possible. And so I was really struck by his, like using the university mission statement as a rhetorical resource. I thought that was really powerful. I think that's something that's a huge takeaway for anyone listening to this who wants to get involved in any kind of advocacy at your university, like look to the kind of founding documents of that university and any sort of like broad value statements, mission statements that they're putting out, that's a huge resource for you to say like, okay, let's yeah, say it's- using Car- their own words. Like yeah, you, like let, let's, say, it, yeah. let's say it's Carnegie Mellon. Our heart is in the work, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, then what is the nature of that work? And, and do, yeah. we, do we all agree that our hearts are, are you know, are in, are in the kind of work that our university's name is on, you know? And let's yeah. talk about that and debate that. Absolutely. I I also love the way that 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 ties in with what Avery was talking about, not to invoke another $10 word, right? But uh, (laughs) prefigurative pedagogy, right? Like that is something that I feel is kind of implicit in the work that all of the people that we talk to are doing. The the actions that you're taking are essentially prefiguring, I guess, I can't think of a better synonym for that, uh, (laughs) a world that does not yet exist, but acting as if, you know, you are living in a different kind of world, right? Or imagining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or modeling. I mean, even like, yeah, yeah. modeling through action. Yep. In Avery's case, you know, that is kind of like an an active redefinition of, you know, something like a university mission statement. There is rhetorical power in being able to apply values to what it means to serve the community, right? Or serve all students and using that kind of, you know, their categorical definitions and being able to persuasively argue for a different kind of definition that serves, you know, a kind of more just world, I think was was super inspiring to hear about. Tied to that, but different, and you guys will probably know how to describe it. I'm not sure <laughs> what to say, but um, that the whole act of like, okay, well, maybe there are people whose minds were not going to change. Like, in as much as like, you can't get people off a, 
off the couch, as it were, to do activist work if they're not already motivated somehow, even more difficult would be to, like, change the minds of your opposition, right? Maybe that's not realistic, but, like, showing the opposition... Calvin, I think you talked about it, like, pointing out that, like, oh, there's actually lawsuits against people who do this, or, like, actually, it's bad for your public image to take yes. this position and, like, using their own, like, victory. And, like, actually, that's maybe not great for you after all. Like, that's really powerful, and I hadn't really... I, I don't know, that, that was, like, a surprising... Not, not surprising, but I, th I thought that was, like, a really cool, good point that seems very effective. Like hitting people where it hurts or finding those pressure points, you know, yeah. where that looks. No, we, we actually talk about that in my classes where when I'm working with students on like professional editing and thinking about ethics in professional editing that you need to name agency honestly and transparently, like don't use obscure language that, you know, that hides what actually happened because that's unethical, that's that's untruthful, that you can justify that to large institutions that you work for by saying, like, you don't want to get sued, do you? Like, right. you don't want this to blow up in your face when there's a public relations crisis because someone realizes you kind of obscured this and this either hurt someone or was harmful. And so, yeah, I think those arguments are really important to uh, think about how to make as a way to enact change in within powerful institutions. Yeah. In the conversation that I had with Danny Singerman, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this specific tactic of hers much, but she actually did, does something kind of similar to what Avery was talking about and, you know, holding institutions accountable by holding them to standards of public perception, right? One of the things that I always know Danny likes to circulate as kind of an activating message in social media and other spaces, because she and the organization that uh, she's working with are advocating for food access in the city, you know, there's the statistic that Hartford, a city of, you know, 120 plus thousand people only has one full service grocery store within its city limits, right? Most of the other grocery stores are in the wealthier surrounding suburbs, and that is a blemish on the city's record, I think, uh, in terms of its development goals uh, and and the fact that, yeah, like, I mean, they've they've partnered with researchers from the University of Connecticut to actually measure health outcomes in that part of the city and say, like, the city is failing its residents here, right? Like, if this is your goal to assist residents to assist in economic development in the North Hartford Promise Zone, it's not happening, right? And food access is such a huge part of that. So, yeah, that strategic communication of holding other institutions accountable, I thought was really powerful across across all the interviews that we did here as well. For sure. I mean, another commonality that I saw across them was was just kind of finding sort of simple actions that can enact a small amount of change and, and, and just sort of involve someone in the issue and therefore like lead to greater engagement. And so I thought that in your conversation with Danny, Alex, like that really came through with these sort of community events that are just and, and that's one reason that I think that your work on food justice and, and, and food rhetoric is is so compelling to me because it's such an immediate kind of material issue that like you don't have to do this kind of really elaborate consciousness raising. It's right. like people know what it's like to be hungry and too many people know what it's like to be hungry to the point of, yeah, like health problems, right? And so being able to kind of organize these events, which are very simple, it's like, here is a set of things that you can 
make easily that's affordable that's like nutritious and and sort of leading people through these workshops and events like i thought that was a really powerful form of materialist political rhetoric yeah no a hundred percent that that has always inspired me about danny's work and yeah it's it is it is interesting that food it's one of those things that we kind of touched on this a little bit that you know it's it does create a whole lot of pain when there's a lack of it but when it's there it is one of the most joyful things in a lot of people's lives right is being able to share a meal being able to sort of activate those feelings of you know communal solidarity in the way that even something that is as kind of simple as sharing a meal with somebody else can materially instantiate right we have a reason to come together we have a reason to care about the same thing look at this we're we're actually sharing something physical that brings us all life and vitality right yeah i don't know it, it's always been inspiring to me the kind of work that she and other people do in those spaces but yeah that's all part of the prefigurative notion too i feel like. yeah i mean something else that i just wanted to note that i thought was interesting we didn't plan this but i think both danny and avery kind of made a point that like for the issues they're working on like having a kind of large protest or picket or something like that would not be appropriate and i thought that was interesting and i wanted to just like get everyone's take on that because i think the past few years just kind of zooming out have kind of revealed some of the problems with movement rhetoric that is so dependent on large demonstrations and marches and stuff like that. I mean, I think the key word there is dependency too, right? If that's right. the if that's the only thing you've got in your arsenal, then that is I think always going to be insufficient unless you are mounting an insurrection or something, right? Like I mean, that's the That's yeah. what I was going to say too. Yeah, like that yeah. you know, <laughs> we we know that this this tactic can be appropriated yes. by horrible people too, yes. right? So like the, the tactic itself can't be lionized or valorized like it needs to have a purpose right and i mean again we don't want to get to a point where we're discounting protests writ large i mean obviously it's got a grand history that most people are aware of as, as like one tactic among many that that really does help bring awareness to issues that helps people feel motivated like actually does get some people off the couch and into the streets but i think it's from talking to our guests here i think in this day and age with the ability of protest movements especially to be appropriated uh, by other institutions who can you know take like an easy like you know once something becomes like a protest movement it has a brand and then that can be appropriated by netflix or various other you know whatever companies are like putting the label of a movement on their products you have less of an ability to do that with the kind of like well i think it's for. just like yeah. the fact that like a protest is is because it's the most like photographable and like it is a thing that occurs at a, in a time at a place as an action that is visible so yes. like, i think that is an image sort of the, event yeah right and so there's the perception that like well this is the movement it's the stuff that we see in pictures and like obviously you're not like taking photographs of every one-on-one -on -one conversation you have with everybody as you pass you know what i mean and like that's because I, what i was gonna bring this to is that i think all of our interview subjects really emphasize the need for patience right like this mm -hmm. is work that is aggregate and it happens over the course of time and if what you're expecting is big protest immediate change like that's not how it works and if from a distance maybe because of like the nature of how these things get covered in the news right like you're more likely to notice those like actual 
sort of moments in time and it's not really about that on its own and so i it's not that it's unsexy but it's maybe just like the i don't know sort of the not invisible activism but it's just not visible to a crowd and it doesn't have to be it's right the person you're talking to well and i think this is getting me thinking more conceptually about the way that our current media environments do kind of lionize that which is you know instantaneous that can be quickly digested that makes a spectacle that has that ability to feel like oh we're going to make this big change you know in you know in two seconds flat versus what somebody like uh, jonathan bradshaw came out with a really good article a few years ago about what he calls slow circulation right the sort of more ethical approach to seeing things as long-term iterative processes by which you can change people's everything from you know getting a policy change to changing an individual's mind we need to start conceptualizing these in more like slowed down kinds of terms because we we are used to in a hypermediated environment thinking that everything by necessity has to move quickly but i think that you know what we're sort of realizing now is that real community building real you know that kind of rhetorical work that makes meaningful differences in people's lives does require us to kind of slow down take things step by step a little bit more. it does i think the problem is not only that you know we're sort of like led to want that sort of more direct just because you know we're modern impatient people or whatever but also a lot of the problems are so immediate like yes you it's hard to know like, okay, well, maybe if I just sort of chip away slowly in a year, somebody might have better access to food in their, like when you know the person next to you is literally starving right now, like, or, or any of these problems, right? Like it's urgent. Like in a lot of these cases, like it's a matter of life and death. And, and it's hard to know that it is slow because I think you want it to be quicker. And I think that that's, you know, it's not just that we've been trained to want quick action is that we know like, we need it, quick action. We need quick action, right? And it's just hard yeah. to know that like the way to get good, effective action out of many people is this kind of slow burn. Because wouldn't it be great if it wasn't? Like, I think that's like a hard challenge. Well, and I think abortion fundraising is a great kind of middle ground because you are doing fast work. I mean, Crystal yes. talked about like getting covering someone's abortion in twelve minutes after right. you know after putting out the message. Like that's that's incredible. I mean, that's sort of providing an immediate, you know, respite to someone yeah. who needs it urgently, but that in the act of doing that, you're building a kind of institution and institutional memory that can do the slow work, hopefully, you yeah. know, hopefully. And, 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 and I trust that someone like Crystal is doing that. And I think like the work of someone like Danny or someone like Avery, like building structures that can outlast you as an individual or that can you know, produce a policy change that will outlast like this immediate controversy or this immediate need is so important. So I think that's kind of how I square the circle is like, it's it's great to make a splash in response to immediate events, but that, you know, you have to sort of produce a structure that will be there after this immediate event. It's like tools in a toolbox. Like it can't just be one or the other and like a good movement, I think. I think we talked about this with everyone, like it, it's diverse, there's a, a host of tactics, it doesn't just depend on one leader or one protest or one thing, because like, that's not, you know, sustainable or scalable. And it's just not how effective sustained action, because that's what a movement is like a movement isn't like a flash, it's a movement. So yeah, that implies some, some momentum. 
Exactly. We should probably start wrapping things up here, but I thought I thought that one last final kind of food for thought question for us would be to re-engage with that the question that we were kind of asking with this panel, which is how does podcasting help us re-engage with and amplify social justice? And at the risk of, I, I really don't want to be creating a hard dichotomy between, you know, academics in the ivory tower, because I don't think that's really what we do. But I think what this gave me an opportunity to do that I really enjoyed was to kind of sit back and listen to somebody else, <laughs> to actually reflect critically on a conversation and think about, I, I can abstract and, you know, contextualize this with the kind of conceptual knowledge that, that I and we have as people people that have studied this stuff for a long time, but, but actually, you know, being able to sit back and listen to somebody else tell a story about how to do this kind of effective work. I don't know. That was a really nice opportunity for me. <laughs> I think that sometimes mm -hmm. academics could stand to do a little bit more listening rather than, you know, like speaking as if we are like fully experts on a topic like social movement rhetoric without partnering explicitly with people that do it for their daily life. Right. Well, I think in the, it's sort of parallel to the way that maybe the best way to get buy-in with organizing work is to break things down and make them accessible, however that is, either with a one-on-one -on -one conversation or sort of tangibly explaining what one person needs or, you know, something little and concrete. I feel like in the same way, maybe this is a little, maybe this is a reach, I don't know, but like academia can be inaccessible, right? It's like a lot yes. of, it's big and there's a lot and it's it's easy to feel like you don't know what you're doing in a similar way that activism feels like that right the problems are big it's confusing you know there's a lot of people with heavy opinions and maybe that know a lot more than you do and so talking about it in these big ways can make you feel scared and maybe ineffective or just not prepared to like dive in but like i can listen to a podcast for 50 minutes with like humans that i can like hear talking right like it's different to hear somebody say it and to read it on the page we you know, as humans, we get that, right? Like, it's a different kind of experience. And I think that, and it doesn't just have to be podcasts, there's all kinds of ways that digital media could be used to do it. But just making things a little bit smaller and more accessible is very powerful for me anyway. I find that like, I'll think about something that I heard in a podcast, and it sticks with me in a way that like, maybe if I had read it as part of a larger, more academic work, it wouldn't have the same poignancy. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that 100%, Sophie. Like, I, I was thinking of that exact kind of way of framing this, like about accessibility and different ways of mediating knowledge, right? Uh, part of what really inspires me about work in technical communication and rhetoric right now is there's such a focus on practitioners and, and sort of making these kind of theories about social justice and about equity um, usable for people working in industry or politics or activism, right? And so I think that's part of what our podcast can do is make some of this academic knowledge more accessible and more usable. And it's awesome too to like hear from practitioners and treat them as the experts they are, like yes. not just go to people who have been studying social movement rhetoric with exclusively within like an academic theory frame for decades but actually hear from people doing this on a daily basis and the knowledge that they have made through their own action their own practices and so that's what was really inspiring to me about all these conversations 
And I think podcasts are sort of an equalizer in that, like, everybody can be an expert in their area on a podcast in a way that's like the barrier to entry is a little different in academia. But just like we were talking about, there are lots of tools. It's not to say that like, oh, people actually doing the work on the ground have more expertise. It's just there's like a, a host of different kinds of perspectives that are necessary to like fully get what this is all about. Yeah, and we are able to synthesize that. And that's why yes, our podcast the is, is the best <laughs> podcast. We're the key, it's the best one. The keystone that's bringing it all together. And without us, people will be lost out there, I think. I think every every conference panel should uh, involve some patting yourself on the back. I so. think so, too. That's important. I'm glad we, we brought it around to that because uh, now <laughs> that legitimizes it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a true academic presentation if it didn't have a little bit of posturing and a little bit Just of back padding, a little a little self congratulatory note in it. Uh, well, with, yes. with with that, uh, we we hope that you all enjoyed this uh, as well. We had a lot of fun making this episode, and uh, and we really hope that comes through for everybody. Thank you very much for being with us today, and from all of us at Reverb, take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. Bye bye, everyone. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helbert, Sophie Wadzak, and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams and Mike Laudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.